This is Subversive, a podcast hosted by me, Alex Kashuta, to highlight hidden voices, uncommon perspectives, and our era's true intellectual elite, the anonymous poster. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so on Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. Thank you and enjoy. Today, I am joined by Patrick Casey. Uh, Patrick is a writer and the host of Restoring Order. Uh, he has written for Chronicles, for American Greatness, um, and The American Sun. Welcome, Patrick. Uh, thank you for having me on, Alex. Good to be here. It's great to have you on. Um, I've heard great things about your work. I have um, listened to uh, some of your more recent episodes just in the last few weeks. And yeah, I have to say I'm a fan and I just you know, wanted to chat to you and uh, also um, introduce you to my audience because uh, they are they are wonderful, <laughs> obviously. Wonderful people listening to this. Um, just wanted you to, to meet Patrick. And I just wanted to discuss, um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the main thing that's been happening in the last month or so has been the upheaval uh at twitter with twitter or whatever whatever you want to call it but it's um it's been quite the change i mean how do you see that impacting the space our our, our space our common space yeah i think you're absolutely right that the developments at twitter have been the most significant of the last few months maybe in maybe in some time uh it's certainly a bit of good news for once, which when you have these views, given the power imbalance, given everything that we're up against, uh, can be is, is always nice when it happens. Uh, it doesn't always happen very often. But how, how has Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, you asked me, affected the general space? I mean, for one, I'm back on Twitter, which is great. I, I had a very conservative you know, guesses as to who would be allowed back on the platform. I thought that you'd probably have some of the bigger MAGA influencers, you know, people like ALX, Jordan Peterson, who I don't think was actually suspended. I think they had locked his account and demanded he deleted a tweet or something of the sort, and, you know, he refused to do so. But regardless, people like that would have full functionality restored back to their accounts. That was kind of my a prediction and uh, lots of people have gotten their accounts back right and you know bigger names smaller names and i think it's a good development i have seen some people get suspended so it's you know people that haven't really done anything so it's it, it's we're in we're on shaky ground you can I, I would encourage people to keep in mind you can still get suspended on twitter so um i don't think the tos has wildly changed yet but overall, it seems to be a huge win for us. Elon Musk has uh, successfully captured basically enemy an enemy institution, an enemy castle, and that uh, there certainly appears to be more free speech. Now, some people are complaining that, you know, this person's not allowed back on or you can't say this or, you know, so the lack of some feature or something. But you just have to keep in mind, look at, you know, is it is it better now under Elon Musk, or was it was it better before under previous ownership? And it's undeniable that there's far more free speech available now on Twitter. You can get, you know, you can you can you're not just going to get banned for being conservative, which is something that absolutely happened before. So I think it's a huge win. I think it's excellent, and um, it goes to show that you know this is. I don't want to say I'm like super pro billionaire right now, but I think that hey, if there are people that have lots of money and they're you know they recognize the issues. Uh, those people are going to be abs like Donald Trump in 2016. Those people are going to be the power players going forward. So um, we're kind of we, we should be very thankful. Yeah, it's it's a little bit like intransparent to me how how much of you know our guy uh, Elon Musk is because in in some ways you know he's he's gesturing towards certain ideas, but at, at the same time he seems a bit like. Um, kind of like a IDW boomer. Also, you know, don't don't look a gift horse in the mouth, obviously. But sure. at the same time, it does feel to me that if someone doesn't have a complete understanding of, you know, let's say a concept like a, the cathedral or, you know, like how um, pervasive and emergent all of this stuff is, um, they might have trouble actually exerting power or actually, you know, 
wiggling their way out of uh, the, the the challenges that inevitably are going to come from from the left because they're in convulsions at the moment mm-hmm. and they're really trying to to defenestrate him in any way they can and they still I mean they still own every institution I mean except for Twitter now but yeah right right basically yes yeah no that's a very good point uh, it's something I've wondered too does he have a, how much of a plan he has what his understanding of the power dynamics that are at play are. And I think he has to, he probably gets some of it just from being, maybe not from kind of the the same theoretical perspective that you or I do or the average listener of your show. Uh, And I think he would certainly benefit from familiarizing himself if he hasn't already with, with kind of, you know, broadly dissident right thought. And you mentioned the cathedral, yeah, right. the, The work of Curtis Yarvin and so forth. If he hasn't familiarized himself with all of that, I I think he would certainly benefit from it. But you know, he was talking about, you know, he had this back and forth with the ADL and he mentioned how he had got together with the ADL and some of these uh, similar organizations to talk about whether or not they would, you know, basically kill Twitter. I think they probably, you know, floated that very openly as a possibility. And he makes it, I don't, I don't know who, they, they seem to have some kind of, you know, arrangement treaty and I don't, it's, it's hard to say who violated it. Right. But he, Elon Musk claims that they did by going after the advertisers before he had done anything. So I think he's, if he wasn't very red pilled on power dynamics and and how these institutions function before, then he certainly is being red pilled by reality, so to speak now. So it's, it's very interesting, but how much does he, I don't know. It's hard to say, but what I will say is he's shown a real willingness to defy powerful institutions. The ADL is powerful. It, is, it isn't all powerful. Obviously, people right of center, including lots of right-wing Jews, probably most right-wing Jews are against the ADL at this point um, because it's uh, openly a partisan organization. Um, you know, they're probably left-wing Jews that feel represented by it, but it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's not going to really advocate for Jewish people unless it's doing so in like a left-wing way, in a way that the regime is is a fan of. And, um, I, I just was surprised at how willing he, he, Elon Musk was to just say no to the ADL to just say, Hey, screw off basically. And, uh, it's pretty rare to see that. It's pretty rare to see that from the owner of a business, right? It's one thing for a pundit to say that, uh, lots of conservative pundits are, are want to critique the ADL. It's very good at this point, but yeah, I think, I think regardless of how, red pill he is or whatever. It's kind of hard to say. He's, he, he does have uh, the willingness to defy powerful institutions, which is uh, a very critical component to having success at, at challenging them. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, only, only time will tell. And, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the more worrying aspect about Elon Musk is that he is essentially kind of a, a Bay Area rationalist type. You know, that's the, that the mm. these are the people that he surrounds himself with. Yeah. Um, he's essentially building one of the most, maybe not largest, or def- definitely the most famous transhumanist projects ever, you know, Neuralink. And um, he's definitely on board with, with some of the more, I don't know, like, you know, Ted Kaczynski wouldn't be a fan of Elon Musk. Not saying that we are fans of, e- of Ted Kaczynski exclusively on this podcast, but we do understand some of his ideas and their implications. And he wasn't wrong about many of the things. So that's kind of my main, um, my, kind of my main reticence uh, with, with Elon Musk as a, as a character. I feel like, okay, you know, he's, he's going to own the libs and that's going to, it's going to be glorious, but essentially we're on rails, you know, towards the future that he himself is, is, uh, is funding, is promoting is, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to, um, if I'm optimistic about that. No, and you're absolutely correct to raise those concerns. We should be very hesitant to project our own worldviews onto Elon Musk, whatever respective uh, flavor of right-wing dissident right ideology we adhere to. He, Elon Musk is probably not that. I think he probably recognize, he clearly recognizes some of the issues Right, he's talked about how woke the woke mind virus is a threat to civilization, and he feels that he has you know this this duty to step into the political arena, and he absolutely has, and all of that is very good. But yes, we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking with you know without you know further evidence 
that Elon Musk is 100% based and red-pilled, so to speak, that he has the same values as us. He doesn't strike me as a particularly religious person. So if you're religious, you're going to have some disagreements there. I, I think he's kind of a good-natured Redditor. And I mean that in no with with no derision, basically. But, you know, he's definitely very pro-science. He's, you know, Neuralink and all of that stuff. He's the guy... He, that's that's the stuff that really does it for him. And you know, while I think technology obviously plays an important role in civilization, um, just and and yes, Ted Kaczynski had some some very valid concerns about the state of technological society and the trajectory, of course. But um, it's yeah, we do, we just want to be careful, right? If Elon Musk is doing good things at Twitter, opening up the public space, that's good. Uh, we don't necessarily, you know, without further information, we would be hesitant to. We should be hesitant to say, oh, he's our savior. He's, you know, he believes in everything I believe in secretly. He just can't say it. Um, You're kind of setting yourself up for a failure there. And right, you don't want to support someone past the point where, you know, they're really deserving of it. But just to be very clear, Elon Musk is absolutely worthy of our support insofar as he is restoring uh, sanity and free speech to the public square. So we, we absolutely are indebted to him for that. Yeah, I think a lot of the criticism against him is that, you know, he's revealed himself not to be a free speech absolutist, like, uh, he, mm-hmm. you know, he said. But I mean, that's essentially an, an impossible standard. Right. Um, and yeah, that's just, it just feels a bit, a bit insane. I mean, that's making the perfect the enemy of the good. People love doing that. And I would like to believe that if I didn't get my account back, I would still be supportive of all of this. Um, I understand if, like, you know, people, I, I've got friends who are waiting to get, unsuspended and and so forth but um and they're 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 being reasonable yeah i don't think we're gonna ever at this point we can't have a 100 percent free speech platform probably anywhere i mean it's like they say the fire in the crowded movie theater i don't know there's a there's a lot of pressure on any social media company so i'm not going to defend i'm not going to defend uh you know people who get booted for constitutionally protected speech um, but at the end of the day, right, there are going to be, you know, which it's just a question, is he moving it in the right direction? Is, is there more free speech now than before? And the answer to that is yes. The answer to that is yes. So um, can't make the perfect the enemy of the good. Yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, what what is and isn't free speech is, is, is very much tied to who is and who isn't in power. And, you know, what isn't what shouldn't be free speech is essentially the exception that we keep talking about. You know, the sovereign decides the exception, and the sovereign at Twitter is uh, Elon Musk, and he's more inclined to agree with people on our side. And I think that is a good thing in in the in the absolute. And like you said, you know, um, I think this is a really good perspective to bring to the dissident right. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, because we've had so many little schisms and infighting, and just like. So many fractures along just, you know, essentially people with with very similar ideological claims um, disagreeing on, I don't know, you know, what age you should get married or, you know, right. <laughs> you know things like that. Or, you know, even, you know, if even even the religion question, you know, I think that's that's a bigger one. But I feel like that's splitting. Immigration is always splitting everything. So it, it it does feel like, um, yeah, we should we should take our victories where we find them. Um, but then again, I think that the, what what a lot of people in the space see, and you know, is that there is no such thing as partial victories for the right, because you know, every partial victory is essentially creating a wave of energy that's going to instantly get funneled into you know getting kicked in the teeth, uh, a la January first type of situations. And then people just, you know, they're just sitting in the and and waiting for for Red Caesar to to, you know, completely <laughs> conquer the right. whole situation. And that's the only that's the only winning uh, condition, the only winning situation. And everything else is, you know, LARP or whatever. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective for sure. I remember Yarvin saying once that leftism is able to work incrementally because it's inherently corrosive, right? It, it it eats away at power structures, at traditions, and so forth. So it can just do that indefinitely, and, and it's probably going to win. Now, it ends up destroying itself in the process. It's kind of like a parasite. It destroys the host. Um, you know, once leftism has destroyed the civilization in question, well, you know, what do you, what does it do then? Well, it's kind of, it's kind of done. But Whereas the right is is based on order, so it's it's metaphysically different. I think I think that's absolutely correct. And I recall Yarvin arguing that you, as as a result of that, it's it's often 
yeah, like a big, a big political move to restore order in like one fell swoop. You know, he's written about some of this over at his Substack. He has some interesting thoughts there, of course. And I think there's probably something to that. Now, people waiting, sitting around, and this doesn't refer to Yarvin, but you mentioned it. Yeah, obviously, people sitting around waiting for Red Caesar and refusing to accept anything as uh, a victory, as as a step in the right direction. You know, because you're just you just are waiting for I don't know Ron DeSantis to become Caesar or something of the sort. Yeah, that's that's not, and I'm not referring to you, of course, but that's uh, yeah, really not a good way of looking at things either. But I think there's probably a good middle ground between those two positions, where you recognize that we can't probably can't do the long march through the institutions the way the left did. Why? Because the doors were more or less wide open to the left in the mid to late 20th century, even the 21st to occupy these positions of power. But after the left got into power, they shut the door behind them. So uh, we can't do that. Leftism, as we discussed, is, is corrosive. So it kind of has that going for it, incremental you know, destruction of, of our country, of our civilization. Whereas with the right, it's, it's, it's very different. So I think you can, you can balance that understanding of things with, with understanding that you just don't, we don't probably don't have the option just sitting around waiting for, for Red Caesar to... To come about, so yeah, take your wins um, when you can get them. And you mentioned getting getting uh, kicked in the teeth or something. Were you referring to kind of how when the right accomplishes something that the the, the power structure, the system, like strikes back, and there's kind of a, like a, a system immune response, something to that effect? Yeah, I mean, you know, Trump. You know, just the the immensity of the immune response against Trump. You know, just built a kind of a, almost like a mega structure of of left wing you know, activism, NGOs, you know, they even bragged about how, you know, how they uh, fortified the elections and, you know, <laughs> mainstream, mainstream newspaper, I don't know what, what it was like Time Magazine or something. Um, you know, that there's, there's always every time, like in January 6th, you know, this, this massive um, mythical event that spawned, you know, crying and, you know, national mourning and people, you know, literally shaking, about right. you know grannies walking through es- escorted through the halls of congress so <laughs> things like that so essentially um every outburst or every equivalent outburst to what what the left would do i mean not even equivalent i mean if you look at all the rioting the left has done you know right. <laughs> unsupervised but any sort of move in that direction from the right is going to be seen as some sort of fascist apocalypse apocalypse event and will essentially be kerosene for whatever the the left is is planning and because they they own the narrative apparatus they're going to be broadcasting that day and night you know oh my god the insurrection 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 um and yeah they're gonna you know kick everyone in the teeth with it you know charlottesville as well i mean i know this is controversial maybe to a lot of my listeners as well but that's you know tragic event absolutely not not a good event in many ways but at the same time you know the this um, how many times you've heard of Charlottesville proportional right. to what exactly happened there um, is is a little bit insane. Um, if you know, just statistically speaking, so that's that's essentially what I mean. Yeah, no, and it's a fantastic point, and I, I hope hopefully we've learned some of these lessons uh, in the dissident right at this point. That you know, particularly with regards to activism, yeah, I mean, it's possible to say that you know, at the same time that, okay, the vast majority of people who were at January 6th, for example, were law-abiding, didn't even go inside, things like that. But at the same time, things like that are, you know, don't really, they don't really help us. They don't really help us. And the reason why is exactly what you just outlined is that, you know, the system is really just looking for opportunities to find something that you as a conservative, as a dissident rightist, whatever you want to refer to yourself as, find something that you're doing that it can say, hey, look, this person is a bad person. They're doing something immoral, illegal, whatever, regardless of whether or not it is. Usually it isn't. And that way they can have ammunition to use against the right. Now that refers to all sorts of stuff. Um, Statements made, activism done, uh, heaven forbid if you're actually breaking the law, which you know, obviously no one would, should be supportive of, no one should be doing that, advocating for it, of course, um, then yeah, they, the system is waiting for those opportunities because they can use them against the right. That's exactly what happens. That's why you keep hearing about some of these things like uh, Charlottesville, like January 6th. We're never going to stop. They're never going to stop uh, you know, browbeating people who weren't even there, who maybe weren't even like politically aware uh, at the times that these 
events happened um, because it's it's ammunition and you don't want to give your enemies any ammunition to use against you. That's a very important uh, lesson politically. Now, what I will say, though, is when it comes to the system's immune response, which is one of these, another one of these kind of uh, neo-reactionary ideas is you, I think if you challenge power, then you're going to get some of that. The question is just making sure that like, if you challenge power in any way, it's probably going to crack down on you. And of course, we're referring to lawful political challenging of power. So I, I think it's just keeping in mind, it's not like never activate the system's immune response. Cause I think that I'm, I don't know, maybe even just doing a podcast is you're probably pissing off someone, right? If you're critiquing, you know, you look at the work uh, of, of uh, Revolver.News and back in 2020 when they were going, they were pointing out the specific people involved in uh, regime change abroad who were doing it, attempting to do it here in America. Well, okay, that probably, you know, invokes some of the, that put them on the radar, I'm sure, of uh, the regime if, if Revolver.News was not already and things like that. But that, that would be a good example of, of doing it the right way. So I think it's just a question of in everything that you do politically, accounting for the fact that your enemy is stronger than you, and if you are kicking it in the teeth, right, it's like you know you're fighting a, a, like a, a massive uh, mythical monster or something of the sort, right? You want to you want to be careful that you're not unnecessarily antagonizing it. You want to be sure that you're getting something out of it. So I'm glad you brought that up. It's a very very good insight. Yeah, I think it's um, it's kind of an, an inescapable, um, yeah line of thought, I mean, especially kind of in, in neo-reactionary circles. Um, and I think it, it also matters very much when you bring these questions to um, to the table, how they are framed and who you are addressing them to. Because I don't think like, I don't think you can do like mass media. I don't think you can do neo-reactionary Joe Rogan, but you could do or whatever, uh, you know, right. dissident right at that scale or, you know, you could probably simplify the ideas and, you know, make little snippets and try to be a bit more commercial about it, but it's not for everyone. And I feel like, you know, you know, another near reactionary idea is the idea that, you know, the only thing that can displace the current elite is a counter elite. Mm -hmm. And essentially the, the only chance for the space to be influential is if it is influential with people who are maybe silent and people like, you know, disaffected people like Elon Musk, you know, he's had, I, th I think he has a lot of personal motivation because I think his daughter is now trans or something like that. Some sort of it's just absolutely tragic yeah. mind virus bullshit that, you know, has happened to him directly. And that's quite a lot of motivation to be looking into this stuff very carefully and to be exert exerting whatever amount of power you have as an individual to fight it. Um, and I'm, he's not the only one. And you can see things in Silicon Valley um, shifting into this direction. I mean, th there are many people in Silicon Valley who are absolutely n crazy leftists and very, very outspoken about it, probably the majority. But there are a lot of people who are, you know, are kind of feeling where the, the wind is blowing and they're shifting into that direction um, mm -hmm. because they're starting to be affected by it. Like their businesses are suffering. You know, they can't get deals done. They can't, you know, their, their children are being groomed in school. There's just so many things that are directly affecting them. So... I think there is a breaking point um, and that's probably in, in my view where the breaking point is going to happen. You know, don't think it's going to be at the polls or if it might be at the polls, but long after the shift has happened in the, the echelons of actual power. So, yeah. yeah. Very good point. Yes. Elites are absolutely necessary and, I've I've been uh, I think I made my dissident right my first dissident right Twitter account in oh maybe late 2015 at this point and uh, before that I had been you know you know somewhat red pilled over the years but it wasn't until then that I was like okay this is you know things finally clicked uh, just seeing what was going on in Europe at the time with the you know the migrant crisis they were calling them refugees most of them were not like fleeing the Syrian war and whatever else it's kind of old news at this point but that's when I really just became invested in this in this space and realized this is something I, I care about deeply. And it's not something that, you know, whereas in the past, I could just, you know, put in the back of my head and so forth. And, you know, over the years, I've seen, you know, people have thought that you're going that like, this is how we win is you red pill everyone on, you know, a whole, like wide range of dissident right ideas. We just need literally every person to be aware of like, <laughs> 
<laughs> every esoteric right wing idea imaginable. And then they're going to you're going to vote for a guy who's running on the right, you know, the Julius uh, Avola or something platform. And then you're going to win. And that's really just not how things are going to play out. So uh, it's 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 a too democratic way of looking at things. Now, um, we obviously find ourselves within a democratic system. So I, I would absolutely not eschew voting altogether, certainly not at the local levels. I think, I, you know, just having places be safe from like the the more direct evils of, you know, you had the lockdowns, which is largely in the past. Who knows if they come back, um, you know, the, the being able to send your kids to public school without them having, you know, the trans stuff shoved in their face and whatever else. That's very important. So obviously keeping places, you know, Florida being an example, uh, local levels, local levels safe from globalism and leftist tyranny is, is very important. But I think that what you outlined is, is correct that we need elites. And in order to win, it's you, you just can't, you can't do without that. You can't do without that. And I think that, the dissident rights purpose is to speak to people who are, you know, above average intelligence, ideally very, um, you know, far above average intelligence and disproportionately wealthy, well-connected, things of that nature. And I see a lot of these people on Twitter alone. Uh, and I know that behind the scenes, a lot of these people are paying attention as well. And we should be very pragmatic at the same time, but we should, that should be who our goal should not be to, you know, I'm not thinking I need to have like, you know, the, you know, the average person out there who votes Republican, but might not you know, be too interested in this stuff beyond, you know, occasional Fox News. And there's, I'm not passing any judgment there. That's, that's not necessary. We, our politics shouldn't, shouldn't, you know, abhor someone like that by any means, because ultimately those people are the ones we're trying to, you know, to fight for, uh, among others. But our goal should be to really be building kind of a counter elite in a sense of speaking to those disproportionately intelligent people and trying to guide them. And that's just what I'm trying to get at here is that the dissident right is never going to replace the mainstream conservatism. It's not going to become like the conservative movement because it's we, we just don't have access to the you know mass media in the way that we can that we can do that. But we can influence people in conservative mass media. We can influence people who work on Capitol Hill, actual politicians, right? I'm here in DC, you know, behind the scenes, you meet all sorts of people who uh, are very well familiar with, uh, you know, this, this space in general. So that's what we need to do, right? Our job is not to replace, you know, conservatism. It's to influence it and push it in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I also think that, um, you know, the the job of, you know, the individual citizen should not be 24-7 politics, you know, consuming politics uh, and, uh, you know, just being completely invested in the political process. Like, I feel like that's kind of what happened in the last, you know, at least since the Trump election, but even before that, you know, people are um, deranged by their implication in politics. I mean, it, it really didn't used to be this way. I mean, you know, obviously presidential and local elections were important, but the idea of of politics as entertainment, as you know, kind of the only game in town, and you know, like um, uh, like ex, uh, my friend uh, Bennett uh, at Extra Dead JCB has this really good quote. Is he and he just says that you know, uh, politics is a religion that people actually believe in, and it really you can feel this in how people relate to their party, their team, you know, red versus, even the fact that, you know, it's red versus blue in, in the U.S. You can even have a, a more, you know, clearly, you know, distinct team um, symbolism attached to the whole thing. Uh, I, I just feel like that's, that will have to break sometime. I mean, I feel like that's also fueling whatever's going on. Uh, and, you know, in the U.S. and downstream from the U.S., everything, you know, everywhere else, you know, like, you know, places like me and my little hamlet here in, in Eastern Europe, like it's uh, all this stuff is here already. And, you know, it's, it's just being propagated further and further. Yeah. It's a very unfortunate situation to find yourself in where you're your, your country is roughly half and, you know, split in half and at each other's throats politically. You have to wonder if any rapprochement is, is possible. And I think it's important, you know, while we're on Twitter and we're owning the lib, so to speak, and, um, you know, making fun of journalists and whatever, which everyone should be doing, of course. Um, 
it's important to keep in mind that like there ha- there probably is going to have to be some rapprochement between right and left if America is ever going to there's going to probably have to be some agreeing to live and let live if America is going to be salvageable as a cohesive political unit um you know it's it's these anti- these internal antagonisms which you know urban versus rural uh you know there's some there's some racial ones obviously as well the, you know atheist versus christian maybe some of these you know these these are divides that without globalism and leftism would probably there would be some you know antagonism there but they've been wildly exacerbated by all of the regime propaganda and so forth so it's it's an unfortunate situation to find ourselves in and this is where people start i understand the appeal of national divorce because you look at these divides and these ruptures and it really does not seem like this this divide is mendable um now as far as national divorce goes that's it's an interesting concept it has a lot of descriptive value um, I, I don't advocate for that as something. I, I don't see there's a clear path to that at any point now, but um, it is worth just considering what the future of this country is going to be. It's it's so diverse, you know, ethnically, racially, politically, uh, in terms of in terms of religion. Although that's probably not the main divide. That you know, you just I, I, I'm unaware of any civilization, any any um, uh, country more specifically, or even empire that's been this diverse that succeeded. So we're gonna have to do what we can with it. But um, yeah, it's 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 a very unfortunate place to find ourselves in for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think the, the the options are Brazil or South Africa, but I feel like a jump to South Africa is more likely. Um, yeah, yeah, Brazil's got a different uh, martial vibe to it. <laughs> I think the U.S. is skipping yeah. all together. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, it's. You know, only time will tell. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to ask you about. Um, you know, you you call yourself a paleocon in your um, in your Twitter bio, and um, I wonder what you think about this uh, this idea. Okay, what what should the future of a cohesive, successful right wing look like? Because I think fewer and fewer people on our side believe in kind of return and the fact that, you know, there is a way to reestablish kind of maybe an idyllic past or maybe just, you know, the the basics of what we had in the past um, and that, you know, kind of the the only way out is through. Um, I wonder what what your feeling is, what what kind of the the principle for for a sound right would be. Sure. Well, I would try to, I I think that we should have firm and valid ideals. We should have ideals that are in line with the history of our civilization, of of the good, of, of order, of beauty, these things. And we should be very pragmatic in how we get there. Because again, you can't make the perfect the enemy of the good. But, you know, Edmund Burke had, you know, he's, he, he wrote quite extensively, I think, on um, the dichotomy between pragmatism and principles and during the american revolution you had you had some forces in parliament who were who were talking they would wax poetically about the right the divine you know the right that the british empire had to uh, do basically whatever it wanted to the american colonies why because uh, you know they had their reasons of course rooted in uh, the, you know the divine right to rule i think it might have been and and you know just the fact that it was it was, these these were colonies of of an empire right that the uh, the monarch had the absolute right. The monarchy had the right to exert power and so forth. And I think Edmund Burke was more of a more of a reasonable figure in the sense that he said, "Okay, well, we can talk about rights all we want, but at the end of the day, these people have kind of developed their own thing over there." And I think he favored, you know, maintaining control still, but really just more live and let live attitude to America, while still still keeping it in, you know, under the under the control of of the empire and after the american revolution right america successfully detached from the british empire i think he would kind of sardonically or sarcastically remark well we had the right to do that right so it's the idea that you can talk about uh, you know these lofty ideals and how you have the right to this this is the right thing to do and whatever else but at the end of the day you have to account for the situation on the ground so I would say, you know, we just have to think of, you know, anyone who's paid attention to dissident rights stuff, neo-reaction, paleocon, what have you, um, probably should have a pretty good understanding of what has allowed Western civilization to succeed to get to the point 
that it has gotten to, although maybe maybe not not right now. Uh, I don't know if we're really in the success phase at this point. We're kind of riding out uh, as the result of inertia past success. I think we should we should understand how we got how we got here in in terms of like the good parts of what we have left. Also, how we got here in terms of decline, and we should be very pragmatic in thinking how we can go from here to a better future. And you know, we shouldn't be trying to. The idea that we can get back to the America of the fifties is uh, it's it's unattainable. Uh, it's it's just not going to happen. Um, we have to accept, unfortunately, that we're not going back to. A pre, we're not going to be able to like rewind the clock to a previous era. I, I guess I've, I've seen a lot of people in conservatism, like 1985 now is the new return. People are like, you know, I, I guess we're at the point where, yeah, the 80s are, are far better than now. It's probably true. I think I think a lot of the decline was already, uh, big, you know, rolling at that point. So uh, we should just be very pragmatic in, in terms of achieving our goals. So something like recognizing that there are downsides to ethnic diversity in society. You know, it's a controversial subject, but... When you look at the data on the subject, you have Robert Putnam's, you know, famous study, Pluribus Unum, where he looked at the negative, he looked at the effects just overall of ethnic diversity on society. And he saw, well, this is, you know, this has not good for social cohesion, levels of trust, whatever else. And since then, you know, there was, there's a meta-analysis, I forget the name of it, but it went through 87 studies on ethnic diversity and over overwhelming that it was, it was negative. So this doesn't mean that, you know, we, we take it. People can take that data and you know maybe reach some uh, immature or or irresponsible conclusions with it, but you know a good way of looking at that is saying, you know, not create like all white country or something of the sort. Not you know just make America like you know maybe just kick out all the Irish to kick me out, just to re- return it to like a wasp kind of country. That, that's not really an option. Um, that's not something I would advocate for, of course. So taking that and saying, okay, well, that means that we should probably limit immigration as a good example, because the more ethnic diversity that we have, right, there's going to be it's lower levels of trust, there are going to be more downsides to all of that. So I think that we just just recognizing, you know, as one example, like diversity, eh, there are a lot of downsides to it civilizationally, even though if a little bit uh, isn't isn't bad, you know, it's, it's really just being pragmatic in how you apply these kinds of principles and these lessons that are gleaned through history, philosophy, social science, and so forth. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's very, um, you know, real politic is always, uh, you know, I think a good idea, but I, I think just a, the structure of, um, politics, such as you find it in the U S and pretty much everywhere around the world, I feel like disincentivizes. Uh, this perspective. So you're, you're talking about civilization. You're talking about kind of this this meta perspective. Okay, this is bad for civilization. Well, the way um, things are organized now uh, essentially incentivizes people in these the superstructure, you know, the, the cathedral, to be very much interested in their proximate goals. There, there is no one who holds the overall view who is the keeper of civilization. There are keepers of various NGOs, keeper of various, you know, local situations they might have incentives to towards their constituencies but it it all kind of boils down to either kind of you know local status games or you know money as well and i don't think everything is about money but it is an important uh, consideration and there really isn't someone you know to to be mindful of this stuff and then you essentially see that you know immigration benefits a lot of people with a lot of power um and Unsurprisingly, the the you know the theology of of modernity is something that says immigration is sacred, coincidentally or not. But it is right. you know it it really is that uh, that's it feels to me that simple sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there immigration is such a hard issue for us to tackle. Fortunately, there's been a, v- a very significant and growing opposition to not only illegal immigration but legal immigration, which is arguably arguably the worst of the two. There's a lot of growing opposition to that, and that's good. But when you consider the special interests, so to speak, at play in promoting mass immigration, uh, it's, it's, you, you've got, because you have interests on both sides. You have interests on both sides, which is, which is a big issue too. You have kind of the Chamber of Commerce, pro-amnesty Republican types, the mass immigration types, on, on the right. And you also have and left of center, of course, they want, they have, they have their own reasons, right? They, you know, favor some of the big business stuff too, but you know, they're importing voters for their side. They, they're, they're aware of that. And, you know, they're, they're very consciously thinking of it in, in racial demographic terms, which is, 
it, the idea that it's just about money or whatever. I mean, the SPL, there's some interview with the main guy at the SPLC where behind him, I don't know if he knew that this was, was behind him. Maybe they just interviewed him in his office and didn't realize it at the time. But behind him, he had on a piece of paper the white percentage of, of the American um, country as like over the years and showing how it was declining. And so you're kind of wondering, is this something he's trying to show off or is this something that he just you know, it's, it's like a motivational thing he's got. I mean, it's, it's, it's so the board. left is absolutely viewing things in those terms and it's important to yeah understand that. I think you can talk about the money when it comes to mass, mass immigration and that, that it is a factor, maybe more so right of center, but overall we understand that the, you know, the right is kind of the outer party of the Republicans in most cases are, are, you know, it's a, you know, there's some differences between what the GOP elites want and what the Democrat elites want. We understand like where the momentum is. We understand where the real power is. And it's far more in the Democrat Democratic Party because they're more aligned with the other institutions, the deep state, the media and what have you. But yeah, their motivation is is demographically altering the country and it, give, it brings them more voters. And it all just it just it just jumbles up the country. Right. It's far easier to divide and conquer. It's far easier to rule over a populace that, you know, going back to Putnam's research or whatever else that has, that has lower levels of trust, lower levels of social cohesion, social community, especially when you're trying to replace community and, uh, you know, just public life, uh, with, with the state basically. So it's, yeah, immigration is, is, is a very important issue, but fortunately, I mean, you have people like JD Vance and, um, even, uh, you know, uh, you know, candidates, of course, that unfortunately didn't make it into Congress uh, this time around. But you have congressional representatives right in the Senate and in the House who have called for complete bans or large bans on or reductions in legal immigration. So I think I think that's a step in the right direction. Now, whether or not the GOP actually gets its act together and does anything about that is um, remains to be seen. But, yeah, there's there's definitely some cause for cautious optimism out there. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's very much tied into um, kind of me- media portrayals of all this stuff as well. Because I mean, I'm just you know referring to people that I know in, in in my life here, and I know the people who are the most inclined to be open borders, to be I don't know, have very strong stances on nut milks and things like that, are people who have consumed a lot of media, non political U.S. derived media yeah. um about anything which is very high status obviously because you know it, it, it illustrates um kind of luxurious lifestyles and you know sophistication that people here haven't seen at all and they um they mis- mistake or maybe you know the, maybe they don't mistake maybe they actually take the actual message of the, of the the piece of art uh but they they really do think that this is you know this is how high status people think this is and it leads them to clear political conclusions. And I think that's probably the case a lot, you know, a lot of the times in, in, in the U.S. as well. Like you really need to overcome something, you know, you know, we call it the red pill, but you really need to, you know, break through a certain mental barrier and like kind of rid yourself of programming to, to even allow yourself to see some of this stuff. Like you really, you know, some, some of the stuff that people uh, confront themselves with like, you know, some of the stuff that you read, like, you know, um, unqualified reservations or the, the dark enlightenment or some of the books that, you know, circle in our, in our, are essentially brute force attacks on this programming. You know, if, if you allow yourself to get past the first few paragraphs for the first few pages, you know, you are, you are essentially committing violence to a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the stuff that you hold dear. So it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it, it feels, I feel to me that feels like one of the hardest things to um, to overcome because it is really insidious and they're really ramping this stuff up. I mean, now I'm you know being red pill or whatever, having kind of seen how this stuff is made, how a sausage is made, and in, in, in media, I can't watch modern media. It's, it's you know I, everything's a hate watch. Everything's you know kind of mm-hmm. extremely disgusting. But at the same time, I see people. Most people don't don't see it that way. They think this is, you know, this is just the way of the world. And this is an insanely powerful um, mechanism. I mean, what do we have? You know, um, God is not dead or <laughs> whatever, like weird Christian propaganda, which, you know, everyone cringes at because it's not, it just can't have the same cachet as whatever new Netflix production. Right. It's a very good point. We have, uh, we have the daily wire. We have Ben Shapiro. That's <laughs> our, uh, yeah. I mean, that stuff does a lot, a lot of the more boomer tier mainstream conservative stuff does pretty well on social media, but you're right. It doesn't have the same, it's, it's in no way comparable to the, 
basically the, the constellation of uh, liberal media outlets and, you know, Netflix, Hollywood, all of that stuff. So uh, it is very unfortunate, as you outlined, that these views that are entirely anti-civilizational are viewed as high status. That is a sign that we have, that something has gone terribly wrong uh, because ideally high status views, which are promulgated by high status people are pro-civilization, right? It might sound crazy. I know for, for Zoomers, they'll, they'll you know, they growing up, they've never really known that, which is very sad. I think I might have caught the tail end of that, where you know, growing up in the upper middle class suburbs, uh, being like uh, just a conservative Christian Republican was was you know, I grew up in Northern Virginia, right? That's not like the Deep South or anything. Yeah, that was that was the standard, right? People's you know, friends, parents, everyone was ever most people were the idea of people being like pro in the in the suburbs and like that class being pro trans children. I didn't even know that stuff existed, right? I don't think I had even seen like a, or known what like transgenderism was until, you know, college or something, just reading about, you know, crazy stuff going on online. So yeah, it's, it's a real, one one of many signs that something has gone terribly wrong where high status views are deemed to be open borders, um, xenophilia, right? The exaltation of the other, the denigration of your, of your own, you know, religion and country and so forth. Yeah, it's a sign that something's gone gone terribly wrong. And on behalf of uh, the sane people in America, I'm terribly sorry for the fact that you have to deal with that in front of me. Remind me which country you live in again? I'm in Romania, yeah. Romania, yeah. yeah. So all the way over in Romania, people are being subjected to uh, who knows what in America. You know, when I visited Poland for the first, and I guess guess the only time, I've been to Europe a few times, Poland only once. Nice country, um, still seems to be holding up relatively well. It's among those in Europe that has not, at least overall, uh, drank the drink the progressive Kool Aid. And I wish the best uh, to the Polish people that they, you know, maintain some sanity over there. But you know, I was at this gym. I was in uh, Katowice, I, I think it's pronounced. Uh, anyway, so not like a major town, but you know, not a smaller one. And I was I was in this gym working out, and there was a very nice new gym, and. Yeah, and they had they had uh, a new flat screen TV on you know every every five feet, so it was I basically a nicer gym than most I've been to here in America, and you know the people there are healthy, you know they're nice, they're all Polish, you're not seeing like tons of you know migrants or anything in there, and uh, so it looks like a pretty healthy civilization, but you know the juxtaposition between like most of it you know, everything else going on at the gym. And then what was on the TVs, the TVs were playing like American rap videos and like pop music videos and stuff. And, you know, I, I'm not like terribly conspiratorial, but like, you just like, you have like the weird, like occult symbolism that they throw into all of these music videos, just being blasted into the minds of people who are working out and pro- probably unconsciously absorbing a lot of this stuff. Uh, it was very sad. And it goes, it goes to show that the, the role of technology in spreading the rot, basically, not it's 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 you know decline spreading like bad ideas and evil values is not limited by geography. Like I guess before you you could send maybe uh, what telegrams uh, trying to subvert the, the country of uh, the uh, you write letters uh, trying to subvert you know a foreign country or something of the sort. But it's a lot harder. It's not as effective. So the technological angle is very important there. And you can see that in America too, because, you know, back in the day, right, the trad, rural lifestyle, whatever, it's, it's, you know, it was far more cut off. But these days, people even in rural areas, they're all on iPhones, they're raised on iPhones, just like people in the cities. Um, So they're, they're doing TikTok, they're doing all whatever else. Now things are still a little saner in the country over there. But we just we just have to account for the role that technology plays in all of this. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that any nation that is allowing its population to just imbibe endless amounts of Western propaganda is long-term going to be able to survive. I'm not a cinephile by any means. And I think some of this like base China stuff that you see people on the right doing is is kind of cringy. Um, But just pointing out what some civilizations are doing properly doesn't mean that they're a model for us overall. Uh, Some of these countries like China that are just like banning Western media, well, that's probably, I think future historians will look back on that and say, well, that was kind of kind of the right move. So yeah, yeah. it's, um, uh, it's unfortunate that, you know, people in, in countries like Romania have to do with, uh, I, I don't know, like which celebrities or shows or whatever else, but yeah, it, it is, it is. And it is really in, insidious because, you know, uh, one of the, the major, um, kind of catalysts for my, uh, red slash black pilling was, you know, just, you know, 
growing, growing older with my friends who I knew, you know, since high school or, you know, early twenties friends and just seeing, you know, it's a whole generation that was raised with whatever, watching friends and sex in the city and stuff like that. And the, the, there was kind of like this end of the world caliber nihilism in, in, in a lot of these people. And, you know, there was a, I think th- there's this like a terrible meme that I think you've shared as well with this cartoon made by whatever furry polycule people. Um, and there's a woman at the doctor and she wants to get a hysterectomy or something. And the doctor is trying to, you know, see if she really wants to. And then she, you know, just says, Hey buddy, this, my bloodline ends with me. And, you know, in a, in a very cool way. And that was kind of like the punchline of the cartoon yeah. and, you know, all the furries, you know, celebrate. And, um, I know people in real life, non-furry, non-polycule, normal ass people that I grew up with who essentially share this. Um, they believe they have trauma. They believe they have, I mean, they're, they're from normal families. I'm not saying, I'm not underplaying the fact that, you know, bad things might have happened to them. I'm sure that that has happened. Uh, but the idea that, you know, um, there, there, there are good reasons to just, you know, just go gently into that good night and, you know, just kind of enjoy yourself. That's, a, that's the only, um, the only thing that you really have to do right now is just, you know, have fun, make money, gain status in whatever status game you choose to get involved in. And that's about it. And then you slowly expire or, you know, expire a bit quicker if you're in Canada or wherever they offer yeah, services for geez. expiration. So I don't know. It's It, it really shocked me. Um, and you know what? It shocked me even more because I used to be like that. I really... I, I recognize that that type of nihilism in myself. You know, I was, I had a point in my life where I wasn't really sure I'd, I'd hit 30, you know, <laughs> alive and, 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 you know, things obviously changed for me in a really good way. But, um, you know, the, these other people that I know, they're, um, they're still there. And I don't feel like there's anything I could tell them that's not just going to, you know, elicit like a, a sneer and like, you know, eye rolling and, you know, I'm not going to call you back because you're just, I don't know, imposing things on me that mm-hmm. I don't, I wouldn't want imposed. Yeah, I mean, what you've drawn attention to here is is the nihilism of the of the current age, and I know there's a strain of right wing nihilism on Twitter, and we're referring to something different, right? Nihilism is a corrosive force, kind of like leftism; they're separate things, ultimately. Um, although I would argue that leftism is kind of nihilistic in its own sense, but uh, yeah, there's there's a certain type of left wing nihilism where it's you know, they're, they're very, they do have values. It's not that they don't have any values, but when it comes to the things that matter, they are nihilistic when it comes to reasons to exist, what matters. And that's because leftism as this corrosive force has, has withered away or, or just corroded and eaten away at all of the things that throughout civilization have provided people with a sense of meaning. Right. And it's not even just, you, if you take a step back, it's not even just Western civilization with Christianity and, uh, you know, there's the, various respective and overall cultures of the West. It's, I mean, look at ancient Egypt, right? Look at uh, Chinese civilization, Japan. You have religion, you have some type of traditional gender roles, right? It's going to vary a little bit, but you have the idea that there are gender roles, typically some form of patriarchy. Um, you have, you have, you have just somewhat of a consensus typically on, on what is right, what is wrong. You have a sense of tribe and in-group, which, you know, is often ethnic. Maybe it's, Maybe it's, um, you know, in some cases racial, most for most of human history, it's, it's not, you know, it's more, it's more typical to ethnic. Uh, maybe you have like an imperial identity or part of this empire, whatever you have like some sense of a, of a tribe of, of people where, you know, uh, you have, but these, all of, all of that has been, has been eaten away by leftism. So now man doesn't have a God or doesn't see himself as having one, doesn't have a tribe, right? You're just a citizen of the world, uh, especially if you're a white person, right? Um, because, you know. Uh, non non white people in in America still have they still have that sense of identities. Largely white people that have been dumb enough to give it up or have been brainwashed into uh, you know in, in whatever else. So it's it's definitely a sickness in in the West uniquely. I don't really see that spreading anywhere else. So you've you've just kind of lost your sense of tribe, even just like civic nationalism, civic nationalism at this point, where you're like, I'm proud to be an American. There are a set of American values. Um, unless you're defining those American values as, 
right, like trans rights and Black Lives Matter, then you're not allowed to have that either. So, you know, all of these things, you know, family, all of these things that that were integral parts of civilization throughout history, and I would say are inherently integral parts of civilization, have been eroded. They've been pathologized. It's not just that they've disappeared. It's that p- people in positions of power have said that these things are bad, that you're a bad person, uh, that person that there's just kind of this attitude of suspicion toward anyone who still values these things. Yeah, it's very sad. It's very sad. And you know, really just late stage civilization stuff where you have people, people get tired. This is one of the many uh, hypotheses for why civilizations fall apart is civilizations lose energy. People just get tired. You have Nietzsche's last man who comes into play. You just care about your basic creature comforts. You don't want to offend anyone. You don't want greatness. You don't want glory. Uh, if you want status, it's just, you know, just very, you know, petty, you know, credentialism or something of the sort. And that's really where we are. And it's very sad to see that, you know, in, in our friends and heaven forbid family members spread. So I guess you can kind of do what you can to steer people in the right direction. But yeah, a lot of people that that's their identity and they want to identify with as what we discussed before is high status, right? It's perceived to be high status. I, I think we, you and I would disagree that that isn't right necessarily um, shouldn't be high status at the very least. So yeah, it's a very sad situation. And I think, you know, honestly, so much of what we're doing now is, you know, is there going to be some kind of like grand restoration of, of political order in America and the West? It's kind of hard to say. Um, but at the very least we need to just have there be a space online, offline where sanity and healthy pro pro-life pro civilizational values can be kind of maintained. We have to keep the torch burning in some way or another so that, you know, no civilization lasts forever, no empire lasts forever. America is an empire. Some would argue it has been since the beginning. I think the figure is like two-thirds of empires have ceased to exist by year 250. So America's not going to last forever, right? And I'm not calling for any like overthrow of the government or anything, but you know, it's just Yugoslavia, the Soviet Union, right? These things tend to dissolve eventually. So, um, you know, if there if there can't be some type of grand national restoration of order, then you know there needs to be something that comes after. And you know, as uh, as long as the internet doesn't go down, hopefully all of this stuff will be out there, and um, we'll have we'll have built like a real counterculture, counter revolutionary culture, and you know something can be done after. But time will tell. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a, a mixed bill. Uh, it is, uh, depending on your perspective, kind of a yeah. parallax of, of uh, deep, dark black and extreme white, um, depending on, on on how you want to take it. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think it's a good a good place to to um, uh, to wind down and also ask you the the last question. Everyone gets this question, the question of a show. Um, do you have a subversive thinker that you think might be underrated and? you know, that might be influential in, in your thinking and you think people should read more of or kind of investigate uh, for themselves? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I've listened to a few episodes of your podcast and I really enjoyed it. And when I was listening to them uh, and it got to that part, I <laughs> I uh, had reminded myself that I should be prepared for this, but I, I was unprepared. But, you know, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with my man, Professor, Dr. Paul Gottfried. I think he, in terms of intellectual history and just overall political insights, is unrivaled on the right. Chronicles Magazine. Um, everyone should subscribe and read his yes. stuff there. I would also recommend, in terms of like a select book, After Liberalism is a book that played a very pivotal role in my understanding of things. Just in terms of tracing the genealogy of liberalism, right? There is a 19th century liberalism, a 20th century century liberalism that, in many ways, is a repudiation of of what came before. Now, the question of did you know the first lead to the second? That's something he goes into as well. But you know, he's obviously he's he's written extensively, um, but you can still find his stuff on in Chronicles. And I find myself very interested in. You know his take on current events and what in history and whatever else. So I would I would go with uh, Dr. Paul Godfrey. There. That is an extremely good recommendation. I actually talked to to Paul Godfrey today. Uh, he's coming on the show in January. So excellent. Um, yeah, yeah, he's great. I I caught his speech at at NatCon. It was really uh, yeah a privilege. Awesome. And yeah, he's he's a lovely person. So wonderful recommendation. Um, thank you so much, Patrick. Um, I want to appoint people. 
towards your many uh, wonderful sources of content. You are the host of Restoring Order, which people can find on many platforms, including YouTube, um, your pieces, like I said, in Chronicles, American Greatness and the American Sun. Um, and are there other places that people should check out your work at? Yeah, uh, I would just say go to my Twitter account. I have my link tree there. I caved and I made a link tree. I don't think there's anything wrong. With okay, that, if there's but, no um, OnlyFans on your link tree, it's okay. Yeah, I, I promise. I promise there there's no OnlyFans there. Um, so yeah, there, that's basically link tree. You can find. I have my article uh, author pages at the various places I've written. If you want to go read my old stuff, I have a subscribe star uh, live stream. So I've got a Telegram too. Using that a little less these days since I'm back on Twitter. So. I would just, if you find your way to my Twitter and, and go to the link tree, that's the, uh, yeah, that's the place to go. Exactly. And Twitter is at Restoring Order USA. Um, yeah, that's, that's the place to go. Um, thank you again, Patrick. This has been lovely. Um, and yeah, please do follow Patrick everywhere. Patrick is, is at. Awesome. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. If you'd like to support my work and access more content, please consider subscribing through Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. See you next week.